Welcome to this episode of the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. Here is your host, Pastor Eric Stillman. This summer, I've been preaching through a sermon series that I've entitled Meeting Jesus, looking at the Gospel of John at various interactions that people had with Jesus so that we could discover more about who Jesus is and what it means to know and follow him. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We remember he was at the tomb of Lazarus talking to Mary and Martha. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And after that happened, the Pharisees really wanted him gone. Basically, the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, were saying, next time Jesus is in Jerusalem, we're arresting him. That's it. Like, no more of this business. So Jesus kind of gets on the down low for a little bit. But then, come uh, John 13, he moves into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. So in this week, he's about to go, he's going to get arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be crucified. But he begins in John 13 with a very surprising and unexpected interaction with his disciples. So I want to read John chapter 13, verse 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. God, open our ears to hear this word. Open our hearts to understand it. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to live this out. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this surprising event kicks off the last week of Jesus' life, and it centers around Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. As you can imagine, in Jesus' day, the roads were filthy and disgusting, dirty and dusty and full of animal droppings and all kinds of things that you would not want to step in, and everyone's wearing sandals. And so feet got pretty messy and disgusting. And the job of cleaning feet was such a menial, low job that not even Jewish slaves were allowed to do it. It was for Gentile, non-Jewish servants to do. So this is like the lowest of the low jobs. The Gentile, non-Jewish servants would wash the feet of people. 
in those days. But Jesus, in this passage, it says, shows his love for his disciples, taking off his outer garment, putting on a towel, and taking the place of those servants in washing and cleaning his disciples' feet. And as we read the rest of the passage, we find that there is a, what I might call an exemplary meeting. Like there's an example. He's setting an example for them. But it also says there's a symbolic meaning that it's not, on the one hand, it's about washing feet. And on the other hand, it's about something that the washing of the feet points us to. So I want to first look at the example that he sets. Because if you read, again, the end of that passage, he says, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So first and foremost, he says, I'm doing this as an example to you. You call me Lord, you call me teacher, and that's right because that's who I am. And if I, your Lord and teacher, am not so proud that I'm unwilling to become a servant and wash your feet and do the most disgusting job, then you who are my servants, who follow me, should not be so proud that you would not do the same. There's four things in particular I think we learned from Jesus' example about what it means to love another person. And I want to just begin by talking about those things this morning. First of all, love means serving others, including doing the most menial, which means like the most servant tasks. Love means serving others. And although he's washing feet, I want you to think about more than just washing feet. It's really not just about that because, you know, feet today are not quite the same as feet back then. We're not always walking around on dusty roads and sandals, getting all kinds of things on our feet. But essentially, he's doing the most menial task, the task that even the lowest of the lowest servant would do. So you can think of all kinds of other things of what that might mean for you in your household, in your family, in the church, those tasks that nobody wants to do. He says, that's what love is. Love means serving others, including doing the most menial tasks. That's the heart of the matter, to humbly serve others, even if it means getting dirty or messy laying down your pride. This is a very common theme throughout Jesus' life. Think of Luke chapter 22, 24 to 27. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Isn't that great? They have an argument about who's next in line after Jesus. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So they're arguing about who's the greatest disciple. And he says, you want to know who's the greatest disciple? It's the one who serves the most. It's the one who humbles himself the most to serve others. That's the greatest disciple. Love means washing feet. It means getting involved in the mess the dirt. Your home's a mess? Let me clean it. Your family's chaotic? Let me enter in. Your life's falling apart? Let me serve you. As Jesus, this example that Paul writes about in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul lays out, you've got, yes, I call my, you call me Lord, and rightly so, for I am equal to God. I am the eternal Son of God. But I made myself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, washing feet, serving those around me, all the way to death on a cross. And if I, your Lord and teacher, have done that, and if you are following me, then what is it going to look like for you to follow in my footsteps, to love and serve in that way? Again, love means serving others, including doing the most menial tasks. Second thing we learn from his example is this. Love is an action more than it's an emotion. Let's face it. Most of what we call love today is about feelings, right? Emotions. Most of when people talk about love, they're thinking about emotion-based love, feeling-based love, romantic love. When I Googled last night, what is love? First, I got the song lyrics, of course. Then after the song lyrics, the first website I found was called theconversation.com, and it defined love this way. Love is an emotion that keeps people bonded and committed to one another. Dangerous definition right there. Love is an emotion that keeps people bonded and committed to one another. Right? That's how the world understands love. It's an emotion that keeps us bonded to one another. I love you because of how you make me feel. I love you because I'm attracted to you. Because I desire you. What's the danger about this emotion? I mean, sorry, what's the danger about this definition? So what happens when the emotion's gone, right? What happens when I no longer feel that attraction, when I no longer feel that desire? Well, then I'm no longer bonded or committed to you. It's a very emotion-driven self-centered definition of love. Love is about how I feel. It's an emotion I feel. It's about how you make me feel. Jesus, in this passage, shows them the full extent of his love, it says, and he washes their feet. For most people in this world, there's nothing attractive about feet, right? And even though there's nothing attractive about feet, Jesus washes their feet, not because he has a desire for their feet, but because love is not an emotion primarily. Love is an action. And he loves them so much that he is willing to serve them in the most menial way and wash their disgusting feet. Love is primarily an action, not an emotion. We treat people with love not just because we're attracted to them, because we desire them, because of how they make us feel, but because we want to do something for their benefit, to bless them. Remember the chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You will not find in that verse anything about love being an emotion that keeps people bonded and connected to each other, right? No, love is primarily an action. It is treating another person with patience, treating another person with kindness, with a lack of envy, without boasting or pride. Love means not being rude to someone, not being self-seeking, not being easily angered, 
not keeping a record of wrongs. Love means not delighting in evil, but rejoicing with the truth. Loving someone means protecting them, trusting, hoping, persevering. That's what love is. And if love is an action primarily, that means that I can love someone even when I don't feel like I'm in love with them. Even when I'm not feeling the love that keeps me bonded to them, the emotion, I can love them. I can treat them with love. I can be kind. I can forgive. I can be gentle. I can serve them regardless of how I feel about them. That's love. It's washing feet. So the example Jesus is setting for them teaches us first and foremost, love means serving others, including doing the most menial tasks. It means love is an action more than it's emotion. And thirdly, love means serving without concern for what you get in return. Just keeps getting harder and harder, doesn't it? Jesus was not looking for anything in return from his disciples. And in fact, they would give him nothing much in return over the next week. They would abandon him, betray him, run away when he's being crucified. He gave an example. He said, I want you to do this for others. That's how I want you to love others. I want you to serve as I have served you. But he's not looking for something back from them. His desires, they'd serve others as he is serving them. That's what love is. It means serving others, not in order to get something from them, not in order to put them in your debt, but just to serve them, just to love them. Not doing your good works in order to be seen by others. Jesus warned against that in Matthew 6. He said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. How about that for a challenge? Just give in such a way that your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. You're not doing it to be seen by others, to get anything back from others, to put others in your debt. You're not doing it for anything other than to serve them, to bless them. You're not even keeping a record of it yourselves. Jesus in Luke 14, 12 to 14, he said, Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He's just saying, it's not, you know, not that you can't have your friends over for dinner. He's saying, again, don't do things to be repaid. Don't do things that others will do for you. Serve others who can't serve you back. Give to others who can't give back to you. That's love. That's service. Not doing it so that others will be in your debt. And some of you know when you serve others, that you're doing it, but keeping a record maybe in your head. You know, I've done all these things for them and they're doing nothing for me. They haven't thanked me. They haven't appreciated. They haven't done this. They have, no one's doing anything for me and I do all this for other people. I mean, that's common to sometimes feel like I'm doing these things and you're keeping a record of it yourself instead of just serving without concern for what you get in return. Elizabeth Elliot, who was a uh, speaker, a writer, 
who died a few years ago, she told this story that's not a biblical story, but it sounds like it should be biblical. It goes like this. She said, Jesus was walking one day with his disciples, and he asked each of them to pick up a stone and carry it for them, for him. They all picked up stones, some bigger, some smaller. Peter picked up the smallest stone possible and placed it in his pocket. They traveled for several hours, arriving at the next town, tired and hungry. Jesus immediately turned the stones into bread and said, eat up. Of course, Peter grew very frustrated, knowing that his small stone was only now a munchkin. (laughs) Jesus again asked his disciples to pick up another stone and carry it for him. Peter, being a quick learner, picked up a large boulder and placed it on his shoulder, and he, Jesus, and the disciples traveled to the next town. This time, arriving at a riverbank and more tired and more hungry than before, Jesus calmly asked them to throw their stones into the river, which they at once did in obedience to his command. They looked at him, waiting expectantly for the stones to be turned into bread, Only this time Jesus did nothing. When Peter and his disciples began to grumble, Jesus said with great compassion, For whom did you carry the stone? It's a great little story. Why are you doing this? Why are you serving? Who are you doing this for? Is it truly for yourself or for others? Love means serving without concern for what you will get in return. All right, so just in case you haven't yet felt really challenged by Jesus' definition of love, let me just top it off with number four. Love involves serving even your enemies. So not only does love mean serving and doing the most menial tasks, serving even when you don't feel love, serving without concern for what you get in return, but also it means serving even your enemies. Jesus is washing all the disciples' feet, which includes Judas, the one who's going to betray him, Peter, who's going to deny him, every other disciple that's going to abandon him. I mean, you look back at the beginning of that passage. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, okay? He knows that Jesus, that God the Father has put everything under his power. He has all authority here, and he has gathered in front of him the man who's going to betray him, What might you have done in that situation? If you had the foreknowledge to know that this guy right here is about to betray me and I am going to be killed. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Jesus had the power to do anything and he used that power to serve the one who was going to betray him, to wash the feet of the man who was about to have him arrested and killed. Love means serving even your enemies. Luke six twenty seven to 36, Jesus said this, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. 
Is anyone feeling challenged by this? <laughs> this, is, this is a love beyond just a romantic bond between people. Paul put it this way in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is an expression that is not used commonly today. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus and Paul saying the same thing here. God is God. He's the judge. He can sort out who deserves what. Your job is to love your enemies, to pray for those who mistreat you, to give without expecting anything in return. I don't know if you have someone that you would consider an enemy in your life. Some of you might. Some of you, it may just be people you just don't really like right now. What would it take for you to put Jesus' words into practice? To love your enemy. To do good and bless those who persecute you. To pray for those who mistreat you. To turn the other cheek. To give to those who ask of you. This is a high, high calling. This, this love that we're talking about is not an emotional connection that bonds people. That when you lose the emotion, well, I no longer treat you with love. This is such a higher calling, higher definition of what love is. Serving others, even your enemies, including doing menial tasks, even when you don't feel like it, without concern for what you get in return. Now go and do likewise. (laughs) What if I were to end the sermon there? How would you feel? I mean, at the best, I tell you what would happen, right? Some of you would go home and you would go and you would go do the dishes without being asked or you would go make a sandwich for, your, for someone and you would go do something and then after a day, you'd be like, okay, forget it. That's, that, that's enough. Like, you gotta at least appreciate me, recognize that I'm trying, I'm doing something here. Like, forget it. Uh, forget it. This, this, I'm not doing this anymore. That's how it would go. If, if I just said, you know, go and do likewise and you were just dismissed in your own power and your own strength to go and try to fulfill this, try to love others as Jesus has loved, this, this is calling is just beyond our capability to have no concern for our own welfare, to no pride, no fear, just go and serve regardless of how they might treat you in return. Thankfully, there's a deeper meaning to this passage. There's a symbolic meaning that he gets into in verses 6 through 11 when he's talking to Peter. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. So Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified And he decides to show his disciples his love for them by washing their feet. And Peter's horrified by this. You're my Lord and you're serving me. This shall never be. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. He's not just talking about foot washing here. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Being washed by Jesus is symbolic of being cleansed of your sin. 
that this foot washing is pointing to what he's about to do on the cross by his death. That's going to be the greatest act of humility and service to go to that cross and die for their sins, to take the punishment they deserved. That's going to be the full extent of his love. And he says, unless I've washed you, unless I've cleaned you, cleansed you, you have no part in me. You don't belong to me. Unless I've removed your sins, you don't belong to me. You don't know God. Romans 6 is a passage where he's talking about baptism. And baptism is a great picture of this cleansing. In Romans 6, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Baptism, which we're going to be doing next week, is a symbolic act by which as we go under the water and come up out of the water, we're identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. That as we go under the water, we have died to our sins. The water has washed us clean as Jesus' blood has washed away our sins. And as we come up out of the water, we're raised to new life in Christ. Baptism is this symbolic act of what God has done internally in, our, in saving us. And again, I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized, come and speak to me. We're doing baptisms next week. And I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptism to, to, baptized, to, do, to go through that if you've come to faith in Jesus. But being washed by Jesus is a symbol of being cleansed of our sins. And when he says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me, he's saying, unless my death covers your sin, unless you receive me as your savior, unless you trust in me, you have no part in me, you don't belong to me. 1 Corinthians 6, another passage that gets into this. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. There's that word. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He's saying, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. When you turn to faith in Jesus, he washes it all clean. All the sins are gone. You're forgiven. So back to John 13. Peter continues, says, Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. What does Jesus mean by this? I think that he means, you know, when you're saved, you don't need to be saved over and over and over again. When you come to faith in Jesus, your sins are clean. Past, present, future, hallelujah, he has paid the penalty once and for all, for all of your sins. Isn't that amazing? But you need to continually come to him in confession, continually come to him to be cleansed. Not that your salvation is gone, but that you, you need to be continued to be made right again with God. As you sin and turn away from him, you come and confess. First John, which is the same John who wrote the book of John, he wrote this in First John 1, 9, 2, to, 2, verse 2. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, 
We make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that's what he's saying there. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, all of our sins. But we have to continue to come and confess to him our sins, continue to come to be purified, it says, to be forgiven. Not that our salvation is in jeopardy, but that we need to continually come to make sure we're right with him. So in John 13, Jesus gives us this picture of what love looks like. Love means serving others, even your enemies, including doing the most menial tasks, even when you don't feel like it, without concern for what you will get in return. But how do you live this out when we're all so full of pride and self-centeredness and fear? How do you love another person when you're afraid of what they might do to you? How do you love and serve another person when your pride is hurt? Or how do you just serve when you want others to serve you, if you're honest? How do you love like Jesus? Go back to verse three through four again. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. I love how he puts it there. Jesus knew who he was, basically. He knew where he'd come from. He knew he belonged to God. He knew his identity was secure in God. He knew he was returning to the Father. He knew that no matter what he lost here on earth, he'd have it all in heaven. He knew God had put all things under his power. He knew his purpose. It's like Jesus knew who he was. And so he served. He wasn't afraid. There was no pride. He knew who he was. He knew his identity. He knew he belonged to the Father. There's nothing that anyone could do to him that would change that. It's so hard for us to love like Jesus. I know our pride, our self-centeredness, our fears just keep us from serving in that way. But when we know who we are, we know what Christ has done for us. We understand that it's not just about go and do what I've done, but it's what, look at what I've done for you in my death for you. My blood that has washed away your sins. The more that we understand that, the more we are freed. We understand our identity of who we are and we can love others as he's loved us. This is the real key, ready? I want to share what I think is the real key to this. Love others, not because they deserve it, but because he deserves it. Love others, not because of what they deserve, but because of what he deserves. I think that's the only way you're really going to get this. If you're going to approach people on the basis of what they deserve, you're going to have a hard time loving the way Jesus loves. Because, let's face it, most people do not deserve that kind of wholehearted service and love. People are rude and mean and take advantage of you, don't appreciate you. And if you're going to love and serve on the basis of what others deserve, in your own strength, you're not going to be able to make it very far. Love others because of what he deserves. Because he deserves it. Because he's the one who gave his life for you. He's the one who laid down his life. Died in your place. And so even if your spouse, your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your coworkers, your boss, 
even if they don't deserve it, love and serve because he deserves it. I'm going to end there, and I'm going to give you some time in, in quiet to just think this one through. Consider this question right here. Who's God asking you to love and serve today? What is that going to look like for you to love and serve him today? Thank you for listening to the New Life Christian Fellowship Podcast. We are located at 1155 Silas Dean Highway in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and can be found online at newlife-ct.org. No redistribution or use of any kind of this recording is allowed without express written consent of New Life Christian Fellowship. 